State political science students present In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast covering state building, foreign policy, political economy, and civil society in the wake of the USSR. This is Jonathan McCrane. I'll be the host for this segment. Uh, given this is the first segment that I've done, I'll get some background info about myself. Uh, first, I'm a graduate student within K-State Security Studies program. My background and undergrad experience lies in IR with minors in Russian and mathematics. Um, I guess predominantly my interest in Russia stems from one of my friends who happens to be from Novosibirsk. One thing led to another, it was once an interest in general history, became a fascination with culture, which then turned into a passion for the language. It should come as no surprise that when it comes to my IR background, I tend to focus on the Russian sphere of influence. All of that may seem a bit blasé, but it's, it's an interesting region of the world, you know. Despite the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia continues to be a major world player, and the past few decades have seen that region really featured predominantly in a lot of the headlines, especially when it comes to foreign policy issues. Uh, a lot of the more alarming and memorable events, such as the Chechen Wars or the incursion into South Ossetia, you know, even what's going on in Crimea, stands out as being part and parcel of geopolitical life over there. Yet, uh, a lot of the effects and other developments go unnoticed by the general public for all the overt, coercive, or otherwise bombastic happenings in the Russian sphere. The, the Kremlin effectively wields various forms of soft power to supplement its geopolitical strategy. And the nature of soft power, its use, its effects, will be the prevailing topics of this segment. Fortunately, my guest today, Dr. Sven Daniel Wolf, will provide insight into Russia's soft power and informal practices. But before getting into the interview with Dr. Wolf, it's probably best to grapple with a recent and relevant news story to both prime the pump, so to speak, and see more current practical examples of soft power from the Russian sphere. Jumping into the news here, there's kind of a bit of an odd example, but Russia's soft power vis-a-vis the coronavirus is nothing to slouch at. While names like Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson come to mind for COVID vaccines, Russia is really starting to top the list as a contender with the introduction of the Sputnik V vaccine. The name alone, Sputnik V, evokes a pioneering spirit as it effectively harkens back to the Cold War space race and the first artificial satellite that represents the treatment's namesake. Everything from the name of the Russian vaccine to its rollout and media-related optics, at least among Russian sources, touts the scientific achievements of Russian scientists, the effectiveness of the treatment, and its affordability. Purportedly, the vaccine is 90% effective. Studies in the UK and news sources such as NPR or the Washington Post have covered the efficacy of the Russian treatment but remain skeptical overall. Given the demands for a vaccine, production issues plague all pharmaceutical manufacturers, Russia included. Yet, for all intents and purposes, this element is usually glossed over by Russian media sources. How this comes into play is that companies like Pfizer and Moderna have been criticized for steering production output to Western developed nations, effectively ignoring places such as the Global South. Consequently, Russia and various media sources note how Sputnik V is in a position to address the concerns of these underserved areas, and thus utilize the doses as a form of soft power to build goodwill in the Global South. Sources such as the Moscow Times are playing up the affordability of the vaccine and highlighting how developing countries are either considering using it or have already taken delivery of numerous doses, 
For instance, common phrases among Russian sources include cheap and strong. Tying this into the broader episode, the Moscow Times, when speaking of the vaccine, went so far as to say, after the 2018 World Cup, Russia has found a new way to promote the country. Such headlines grab the attention of today's guest, Dr. Sven Daniel Wolf. Dr. Wolf is a lecturer at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. He is an urban and political geographer who specializes in mega-events, urban development, protest culture, and soft power. Notably, Dr. Wolf is fluent in Russian and studied in St. Petersburg for his MA. From there, he went on to Zurich to complete his PhD, and the culmination of that process was a thesis which pertains to the soft power articulation in and around the 2018 Men's World Cup. Aside from his routine work at the Department of Geography and Sustainability at the University of Lausanne, Dr. Wolf is also a part of Dr. Milton Muller's research team, M3, Materialities, Multiplicities, and Metropolis. Subsequently, before we start, I want to both welcome and thank Dr. Wolf. I'm excited to have this opportunity for what is a unique and fascinating subject, soft power. Thank you for coming to the program. How are you? Doing all right, sir. How about you? Oh, better than I deserve, I suppose. <laughs> Fair. Thanks for the invite. This is going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, agreeing to do this. What our formal practice is, you know, could you kind of lay that out as a summary of the concept, how they're utilized, and sort of any practical examples of informal practices within Russia? Informal practices. Um, I, I like seeing that you, that your class was was dealing with um, this uh head on um and it's an interesting sort of connection to, to have that that sort of notion of informality writ large and how that connects to soft power and i i, I like uh, you know i like that um it's a very provocative and very difficult sort of avenue to pursue um my understanding of informal practices is of course conditioned by you know who i am and my exposure to to um Russia, um, as far as scholars, I would say that, you know, Alyona Ledinova is, you know, foundational. Like you have to understand Blot and the way that she conceptualizes informality. Um, but uh, for me, I, I'm always trying to bring it um, outside of this abstract uh, academic sphere and bring it to um, lived reality and on the ground experiences. And so you know, a, 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 like a practical example of, of, of live, you know, uh, of living what informal practices means. Um, you know, I have a, I have a million of them in, uh, in Russia. Um, so as an example, um, when my wife was pregnant, um, you know, her father had a lot of connections in the city where uh, she was from. And we wanted to go and get her checked out because, you know, we had flown from the United States to Russia to go visit and she was pregnant and she was feeling a little weird. So I'm going to go to the doctor. Okay, says dad, I'll, uh, I'll call and arrange it. And, you know, she's a very independent woman, uh, my wife, and she, she wanted to um, do it on her own. And so he cautioned us against this. And we completely, uh, being, you know, young and independent uh, children, we we decided this is this is silly. Let's we can go to the hospital ourselves. We don't need you to arrange it. So uh, we end up at the hospital, and they've got typical sort of post-Soviet hours for for the public. You know, it's like one forty-five to three fifteen. You know, something totally random with a technicky pity of the little yeah, banker's break. hours essentially, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. To, totally un, un, unusable, but we're there, and it's 
maybe five minutes before um, closing time of the, you know, the, the, the public opening hours, there are two people in, uh, you know, ahead of us in line and nobody's moved for 45 minutes. And then they open up the doors and like 30 women get, you know, brought in from some ward that's elsewhere. And my wife is, you know, she's pregnant and she's a little bit fragile. And so she just, she's so upset at this this blatant, you know, impossibility of accessing what should be, you know, reasonable, you know, accessible healthcare is what the story is. She makes a call to her father and her father says, you know, I told you, but no big deal. Let me handle it. He makes a call and in two minutes, three minutes, um, the door opens and a nurse calls us by name, brings us, you know, in to a separate office, not where all those women went, but to like a private thing and we get seen. Bam, bam, bam. But the next day, I had to go into the city with my father-in-law, and I had to buy a bottle of martini and uh, a, a bottle of perfume. And then we had to deliver the bottle of martini to the man that he called, which is his friend, and then the bottle of perfume to the woman that the man called. So, you know, what I'm doing is I'm distributing gifts as a, you know, to refresh the network. And also I'm, you know, I'm behaving appropriately, but there's, there's not this understanding, you know, that this is necessarily corruption. This is just the system. We benefited from having an informal network. And it's also very geographically limited because that network would not work anywhere except the city where he was established and he was a businessman, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it also indicated a certain level of status. And so it's deeply unfair but you know you leverage those connections and there's a million different examples of that everyone kind of jockeying and and leveraging their own you know informal networks um in order to get the best possible uh circumstances or or, or outcomes um given the limitations of their circumstances yeah it, it's kind of funny you, you mentioned sort of like the corruption but not as a sort of vague concept that everyone just gets along with and is this acknowledged understanding i spent some time in central asia mm. and uh, had some interaction with corrupt police officers specifically on the trolley one i noticed i was on my phone i i made it a point to dress like the locals not you know i spoke russian when i could was, mm. you know i was only in my second year so it wasn't that great but anyway this cop had noticed me and started prodding me you know americanski 50 som <laughs> nothing for me right but you know, like i'm not gonna do this and uh, some old woman that I had gotten up to give my seat to at that stop essentially like chased him off the train by beating him over the head with her grocery bags. I didn't think anything of it. Went home that night to the host family, uh, who was fairly well off for the for the capital of that country, and was explaining and like, oh, that's interesting. And you know, next morning this cop is on the front porch making an apology to me. I'm like, what the hell? And so it turns out that the son of the host family, his best friend is head of internal affairs for the whole country. <laughs> and like never in a million years would that happen in America, you know, like it'd be all a formal and official and, you know, media thing. I'm like, no, no, just, <laughs> just, I couldn't believe it. It was just so wild. That's a great story. <laughs> the cop was like, yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Just, I, uh, I didn't know. So embarrassing, you know. Like, is it? Please tell me nothing's going to happen to this guy outside of this, right? Like, yeah, right. Well, this this was Kyrgyzstan, or yeah, yeah, Bishkek. That's that's a phenomenal story, Jonathan. Uh, oh, I love that. He's like, I mean, I, that, I just, that whole five I months was like the time of my life, and that was just probably on the 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 list of highlights. That's on the bottom.
<laughs> not not for anything fantastical or corruption wise just sort of funny memories but yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny how you accumulate those stories in mass with quite little time in that area well i mean it's 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 good because it's i mean we, we benefit from the privilege of being able to experience multiple realities you know mm-hmm. like you, you you have you have a trust that if you for example something if you did something big if you started a business or you bought property that you can trust that under most circumstances you know i mean unless the government decides for some crazy eminent domain thing and i mean it, it happens right um in in the sort of west broadly speaking obviously and i'm not trying to like romanticize this this idea of um this kind of like property rights and, and yeah. you know legal bureaucratic structure we definitely don't live in a paradise but you know it 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 would be insane to imagine that that you would you know start a business and then like a protection racket would come by in this day and age and 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 really be able to leverage their their muscle like that would be you would have some kind of a recourse you Mm know um or at least there would be the expectation that you would have this recourse what are you talking about trying to trying to muscle in on me this isn't you know like 1930s chicago kind of <laughs> stereotype like yeah. what what on earth and it's a real shame to try to build a life um in in uh that kind of circumstance where you know you're trying to start a business or, or trying to buy property and then somebody likes your business and then they can just take it from you and then they've you know bought off the judges and stuff and so it is absolutely terrible um but but uh my God, it's so convenient sometimes to, to deal with, I mean, like, like, you know, having had my own experiences with, with police officers who were really just looking for a petty bribe. Um, there have been times, especially in my twenties when I was like, why can't I, why couldn't I buy off cops in America? (laughs) (laughs) It's just five over officer. Here's a 20, you know? Exactly. (laughs) Just, you know, you go your way, I go mine. We all just, we have an understanding. It's easy. And I mean, it's not like that, but you know, I know. You know, and on on one hand, it's like such a Western thing to be like, oh, that's nice. And when you think about it for a couple minutes, like if it's that widespread and like systemically toxic at even the lowest levels and institutionalized, the top is pretty messed up as well. You know, there's, yeah. there's a lot of scheming. Um, and this is, you know, connecting to uh, like soft power and foreign policy and, and, and all of those other kind of scales of analysis. It's not just on the individual, you know, the man mm-hmm. on the, on the tram and the, the cop, mm-hmm. right. It's all the way up to the municipal government and the federal government and those networks. And it's, and yeah, it's it, metastasized. Absolutely. And, and those, those networks of relations work between nations too. And so in the whole former Soviet space, you know, there, there's this, um, there's this mixture because, because, you know, what we were talking about in class um, the other day, just that, that blurriness, I think is, is really the most fertile area for investigation, you know, both just in terms of generating interesting stories, but also if you want to, you know, look at something um, academically, that blurriness is really uh, key because you have this mixture between um, this legal, rational, bureaucratic state and lots of bureaucracy and lots of laws. So it's not all just this kind of like clan, tribal-ish mm-hmm. sort of patrimonial relationships, but but really, um, you know, at this 
this mixture of informal relationships with that legal bureaucratic um uh you know structure and and you learn the rules of those games by being there and and so then you see a lot of people in the west trying to analyze um you know domestic politics um in russia or central asia or anywhere in the sort of post-soviet post-socialist spaces and if you look at it without that kind of understanding then i think i would argue that in, in you know you're probably missing something of that analysis yeah my analogy for it is it's kind of like the social sciences equivalent of quantum physics right you know life is both or light is both a particle and a wave probably at the same time and subatomic particles can exist and not exist or occupy multiple spaces and it's the same part like there's just wacky stuff going on and you know like it's kind of hoodoo for for quantum physicists for the general public but i think that applies to social sciences too when you started getting into like these cultural and societal uh happenings there's like multiple games like being played and overlapping and trying to figure out where the pieces are phasing in and out or where they're consistent it is really critical and sort of on those lines um you know, as we've kind of hinted at, a soft power is this very vague, nebulous concept at times, and sort of how it's used and what it uh, can do is kind of controversial, right? So how do you draw the line at soft power? You know, it's one man's soft power is another's propaganda. You know, mm-hmm. my PR campaign is not necessarily so benevolently received by certain audiences and so what what thresholds do you say you know soft power is abusive or manipulative or questionable right yeah it's a good question um so i i again i i try it's 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 a difficult one because you know in the academy there's this tendency to try to nail things down to say this is knowable and this is knowledge and and um as soon as you you know, get, I think, a couple of monographs published and maybe tenure, then suddenly you can say things are fuzzy and people are like, oh, you know, Dr. McRae says things are fuzzy, therefore they must be fuzzy. <laughs> but, you know, if you're a graduate student and you say things are fuzzy, they're all, you know, define what you mean by Yeah, that. when you're established, if, if he doesn't get it, no one does. But when you're not, it's like, okay, do some more reading. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a third sort of like authority games and and, 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 and such going on um, at... at um, you know, depending on, on, on your level. Um, but I think for me, uh, so soft power, you know, if, if, if we're defining it as, um, you know, the sort of Joseph Nye, like we were talking about uh, in, in class, uh, the Joseph Nye driven concept um, or originated concept of uh, uh, international relations and, and political science of like a state really wanting um, to, to, to pursue its goals and getting other states to do what it wants um you know and understanding that a state is not a unitary object and so how can you say like what a state wants but like to achieve its goals without hard power without um coercion without without um force so this process of co-optation so i would say like a pr campaign is uh a uh sort of fits under a soft power umbrella right um soft power is 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 just sort of a broad term um, for interrelations, um, you know, at maybe the state level uh, that don't involve express um, coercion, but rather, you know, co-optation or some kind of seduction. 
but it is inherently amorphous and i'm trying to like um, embrace that that amorphous nature and so i say like first off so what's the state you know what is that you know when you say russia um and again i, I you know i deeply recommend uh um uh, natalie koch and and uh uh her her sort of political geography approaches to synecdoche and this whole just you know problematizing the idea when you say you know the kremlin wants or you know russia wants and all of that because when you start looking at it with that lens and you realize that that you know different people inhabit different roles within this amorphous structure that we call the russian state and they can put out different messages right um but you know you ask an interesting question about um like like uh you know propaganda pr and 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 then you go you, you went on to saying like abusive right um so I think propaganda and PR, I mean, those, those are really interesting different terms for maybe the exact sort of same notion, which is, you know, or, or you, you could take, okay, let's, let me take a step back. If you, you could take it down to um, uh, an individual level, you know, you go to class on, the, on your first day um, and you can dress up and put on a suit and tie or you can intentionally look like a bum, or you can, you know, you, there's a way that you can present yourself. And, and, you know, organizations will pay people to manage their quote unquote image in order to, to make their, um, like a, like a, uh, their behavior seem more logical or more palatable um, in this, you know, global marketplace, because we're, we're sort of simple monkeys in a way we want, we want to, to make an identity out of everything. We want to make our country into an identity, into a person so that we can make sense of it. Like a company, you know, you, so you, you would, you would think that, that, uh, uh, you know, Apple is a company or, you know, Russia is a, you know, or Apple is a company. Apple is a person. Russia is a person, right? Because that's sort of one way that we can make sense of, of, of this mass of, of behavior and, and, and sort of contradictory and confusing impulses. And public relations is just, um the the sort of conscious act of of managing that projection so that you know it's like i will go out every single day wearing you know clean clothes because i don't want people to see me you know like before i i go with this interview like why do i choose to wear you know european university at st petersburg sweatshirt you know like i have a different shirt on and i'm like oh let me put on or before my you know class with you oh i'm just gonna put on a like a collared shirt with, with buttons why i'm in my living room you know, like, it's not like, it's not like, right. But, but these are the things that, that, you know, we do to show respect to the audience and also to present a certain way and to, to, to carry ourselves in a certain way. Um, that is propaganda. I mean, am I, am I, you know, distorting the truth or am I being selective with the truth? I mean, that really just sort of depends on, 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 I guess, uh, who you're asking. And if you're talking about being abusive, um, I mean, any sort of power relation, uh, I, I mean, it depends again, if you're coming at it from a realist sort of zero sum, um, political game, uh, understanding of it, you know, in a, in a, in that sort of zero sum equation, then I get what I want as a state or as an actor or whatever. And then that means you're going to lose. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, we can have sort of win-win collaborations or something, um, but the idea of just sort of necessarily it, it being abusive, I mean, I, I guess it just sort of depends um, very much on 
the situation and and, and the um, uh, and the interaction. Um, if there's some kind of external costs which are you know profoundly negative and and can't be You're unethical it, human rights. Y- types, yeah, so exactly. Yeah. But again, all of that is you know super culturally mitigated, or I mean culturally dependent also, and and you know you risk getting into this also this sort of moral relativism where like I have to make a stand at some point. Like I believe murder is wrong, and you know like you yeah, because to... you're kind of caught in that. Once the it's like a radio signal. Once it leaves the subjectivity of the audience, like that's yeah. out of your control, right? Like how they take it is how they're going to take it in one respect. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, a lot of your expertise with Russia in particular is these mega events. And so when it comes to those two, how would you describe sort of the successes or failures and maybe perhaps what Russia was trying to accomplish or should have accomplished with them? Mm, excellent, excellent question. Yeah. Um, talk about squandered opportunities. Um, I, the, the hope and the rhetoric with, you know, mega events is always about this international unity and I'd like to be, um, a, you know, a very cynical kind of savvy academic and say, you know, <laughs> it never works. This is nonsense. But being on the ground uh, during the Sochi Olympics, like in the Sochi Olympic Park, was awesome. And I, I, I know that it's constructed and I know that it's branded and I know that, you know, coca-cola paid 187 million dollars or something in order to get this you know it's it's logo there and i and i understand the the financial reasons for it and i know how fake and artificial and i know the costs that it had on the society and i just can't help it people were having a really good time and it would be inaccurate to say that 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 emotionality that pleasure didn't exist um it did exist people were loving it on an international kind of unity party level everybody it was a it was a political geographer's dream everybody literally (laughs) wrapped themselves in their national flags and then were like partying and hanging out and dancing and kissing each other you're like are you kidding yeah it's like how do you get this much civic colored virtue clothing everyone and not have (laughs) issues right (laughs) it was was amazing um and we we um I think the 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 opportunity, the biggest opportunity um, for a mega event, as a you know, you can you can see um, this way to like you know like quote unquote rehabilitate a, a, a nation in the eyes of the world. And by the way, um, you know the world is just code for saying kind of the global north and Europe and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But you know, you see like Japan was was rehabilitated in the, the the Tokyo Olympics in what like 1964 I think yeah Rome was 60 and Tokyo was 64 um and it got to sh- show off you know this new urban development they've got the, they built this new train and and let's not you know pay attention to any of the sort of local socioeconomic inequalities but here we're willing to play by the game by, by play the game by by your rules and come and have a good time and now we're ready for business in in this way right um Germany was able to show sort of the same kind of rehabilitation process, you know, in the middle of Europe um, with uh, its, uh, I mean, you know, a, a series of um, different mega events uh, from from um, the Olympics in, you know, Munich and of course marred by terrorism, but also the, you know, the World Cup in 2006. Um, it's this way to sort of like, you know, almost like a, like a debutante ball, if you can imagine, um, sort of stretch the imagination. Uh, and you you know you, it works at multiple scales you you can invite 
tourists who can come and and show how um, how welcoming we are on an individual level. And it's like a, a really easy excuse to go and visit um, another country that might never you might never get the chance to visit, you know, before or after, because there's games to go to, and the games provide this sort of familiar superstructure for you to go visit, and and everybody there sort of shares that same sort of sporting culture, and you're all gonna want to go get beers afterwards, and everybody, you know, you can um, uh, share in this kind of friendly sort of nationalism right mm-hmm. within accepted rules and and that's extremely compelling because we all you know sort of want that sociability and that 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 social connection and then also it shows business compatibility it shows look we're open for business with global circuits of transnational capital um you can invest with us and we can invest with you and let's open the doors to trade and let's have these markets right so it's a it's a it's a it's like a signal flare to you know billion dollar corporations all around the world that hey we're we're open for business we're 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 a reliable trading partner and that's the issue with russia is that it's not a reliable trading partner because of the informal practices because of the authoritarian um drift or headlong rush depending on when you're looking at it um so so you know, and, and it says a lot about, I think, globalized capitalism that that uh, the big problem is, you, you know, if you look at, at uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky and, and, you know, the Yukos affair, uh, the problem is not that here is a billionaire who privatized, uh, you know, a state company and and and, you know, say what you will about what he's doing now but you know the problem is not that billionaires exist or or that this privatization scheme you know impoverished you know tens of millions of people or anything the problem is that uh the government can take those billions of dollars from him it's like jack ma in china (laughs) yeah exactly like theoretically untouchable but he disappeared for a while right because right and what happened there so that that actually puts everything at uh, a really big, um, I guess it's sort of like an alert level for for the the titans of international finance. We are not going to invest in 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 your country because we're because our money isn't safe. Because mm-hmm. at a moment's notice, you can change the rules of the game and take that from us. Okay, well, you know, we're, we're just going to go elsewhere. And then compounding that is, you know, the situ the economic situation brought about by either you know the collapse of oil, since so much of the economy is dependent on hydrocarbons. Yeah. You know, you can value the value of the ruble can so drastically fluctuate that it, it makes trading and business hard to conduct or like safe. Quite. And then, you know, what's going on in Crimea with the sanctions and with the businesses that it's affecting and how that's impacting the economy and the savings and loan crisis that results from that. Like, that's like a financier's worst nightmare when you can like get all three of these things going together. Yeah, and well it, said. The, I mean, exactly right. The, the The level of instability there means that any kind of soft power gains are just window dressing, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. It's a temporary, it's not, it's not an introduction to this debutante's ball. It's just this expensive party. I will come to your house and we'll have a good time, but you know, nothing fundamentally is going to change. So uh, sort of, uh, so in terms of, you know, global interconnectedness for better or for worse, um, that failed. Um, And what I mean for better, for worse, you could, you could argue that it, 
again, it just, I, I don't want to be ideologically sort of like anti-capitalist or anything, mm -hmm. but there, there's also in, in like attendant inequalities that come with expanding, you know, uh, multinational corporations to your, to your, to your country. So, I mean, it's, but what it really, what really makes me sad is the level of, um, sort of the quality of life and the level of opportunity for ordinary people, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's an opportunity cost, there's billions of dollars um, that are put into urban development projects, which on one hand are quite necessary, like the, the you know, public transit infrastructure networks um, in peripheral cities that were host cities for the World Cup were, a, you know, oftentimes abysmal before the World Cup. And then they got modernized. Um, Volgograd has a decent airport now, and 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 it didn't before, right? So it, it could handle millions of people and throughput capacity now, um, and it looks good. And it's much, you know, it's a it's a it's it's an airport that wouldn't look out of place in you know Western Europe. But you know how many people in Volgograd use the airport? Um, and, and so, you know, they redid the center of the city and it looks great. These pedestrian walkways are, look really lovely, but how many people really live there? And, mm -hmm. and does that, well, you know, what, what does that actually do for the, for, for the people over the long term? And is that really the best use of money? Um, I mean, those are very controversial questions, um, that Russian authorities don't want you to ask, by the way. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> embarrassing, right? Like. Uh, when I was in Bishkek, that sort of the side effect of uh, the war on terror was the U.S. Air Force used Manas Air Force Base quite extensively, mm -hmm. right? And, and so there was a lot of money cranked in to make that airport fairly modern and like surrounding infrastructure or what was deemed, quote unquote, critical infrastructure in Bishkek uh, was kind of heightened. And you you get to Krasnaya Plashad, the, you know, the red square effectively in Bishkek, and it's gorgeous. Like brand new sidewalks, perfect, everything yeah. just perfect. And as you said, with some of these host cities, like no one lives there. I went down there half a dozen times and maybe, you know, 10% capacity during yeah. what should essentially be rush hours. But you yeah. get out further into like the other micro districts and the sidewalks. It's like an Indiana Jones movie with the sidewalks and, you know, the, the central yeah. heating system from the Soviet era where they have the steam plants heating. Like that's a mess. They're tearing up everything. And it's like the, the infrastructure outside of like these glitzy areas is just abysmal yeah right and, and so so there's this like i in 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 one of my my sort of academic thrusts that i'm sort of working on is this idea of you know patyomkinism specifically that level of development right it looks great for people who come fly into the new airport drive through the renovated center and go to a new hotel, right? And you're like, hey, look how our city is developing. But if you go out to the micro districts, then you can see that, well, actually things look like, a, you know, after, you know, after the war, it's just bombed and, 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 and it's, it's, you know, people deserve better. And the answer to that, I would argue, is not uh, what this authoritarian, um, sort of mindset prescribes because you know if you as a as an outsider come and say and say hey uh this is terrible well hey those are anti-russian views 
and you're a spy and you're not supposed to go out to those areas and we kick you out. It's horrible. And if you're a local and you say this and you're like, well, you're being unpatriotic and you've, uh, you're being funded by foreigners anyway and shut your mouth, you can't say that. So it's like, that's the, the change that I've seen, you know, mm -hmm. this, this change from semi-authoritarian to, in, you know, increasingly authoritarian is, is the inability to say. Yeah, to speak what, truth to power. They're just what you see. You're just not allowed to say, oh, well, you can't go there. Well, what do you mean you can't go there? People live there. I mean, like, they, they, it's not, a, it doesn't matter to me if I can go there or not. It matters that the people are living there and, and, you know, have no, um, uh, autonomy, no say, no one's listening to them, and they don't figure in plans, these very top-down kind of plans for, for development. So to, you know, I know I'm, I'm answering like 20 times longer. Than <laughs> no, no, hey, I love like, it. Um, thank you. <laughs> very generous. Um, but, but like, that's the biggest missed opportunity. Like, mm -hmm. if you can use this development impulse, if you can use the development impulse of the mega event to, to really, you know, bring some attention to neglected areas, but, you know, it's, it all depends on your definition of neglected areas. They're like, well, we need new airports. Well, yeah, you do need new airports. But also, you know, there's a city of a million people. And the majority of those people uh, really don't need a better airport. Um, they, they could use some roads. They could use some houses that, that, that you know, weren't built in the 1970s and, that, and not renovated since. Um, and, and so that's, that's, to me, the biggest lost opportunity uh, for the for the local level for the international it's just the fact that that um the 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 party is over and nothing substantially has changed that russia mm -hmm. as, as a state the russian state can feel like it's it's had this celebration it's shown that it's part of this big club of host nations you know it's, it's like, oh we participated in this prestigious thing so we had the olympics we had the world cup ccc we're we're a great nation um but but uh there's still visa requirements. There's still suspicion of foreigners and Westerners in particular. There's still processes of like increasing closure. There's there's not not an increase in business linkages. You don't see diversification of the economy off of off of you know petrochemicals. You don't see um, opening towards the world just in terms of like ordinary human beings. You know, there's there's this broad sort of discourse of suspicion of the outside now um that is not going to end well so instead of like yes let's be part of europe and part of the world and have this interchange now there's this like very pronounced sort of besieged fortress mentality which is a just a such a disappointment and the interesting thing last thing on this that that i'll say was the interesting thing was just to see in the world cup that 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 difficulty in balancing um these contradictory impulses so you've got the besieged fortress but we have to welcome all these guests and 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 how to reconcile those uh those tensions you know we have to we have to welcome the foreigners but foreigners are evil you know and how how the state uh, you know and agents of the state negotiated that is um is really interesting to see yeah, and it's kind of like a microcosm almost of the russian regime in a sense that it's like almost not not to like disparage it, but it's almost medieval in a sense. Like you got to pay homage to the liege, right? Like you got to play the Game of Thrones, and and on an international stage, like sort of the 
the fanfare and celebrations and optics of the Olympics is like a Game of Thrones of sort. It's like, aha, we've done this. Now we can go, right? Yeah. We got our yeah. prestige door card. We didn't get the promotion we wanted from the boss of the party. But hey, we got our cool white elephant gift. We we can say we went. And, yeah. and that's kind of like the long and short of it. It's kind of, it's a little bit sad. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so sort of wrap this up, I guess two quicker questions. Um pivoting away from sports and mega events, one of the the things that's relevant right now in the news is coronavirus and the COVID vaccines. Yeah. There's Pfizer, Moderna, all that. And Russia is really hyping up their vaccine, Sputnik five as it's called, which I thought was kind of a hilarious name, totally given all the connotations with, with the the nomenclature. And, you know, it's cheap and strong. And one headline I was actually reading today was like, after FIFA World Cup 2018, Russia receives new chance to boost its optics from the Moscow <laughs> Times. I was like, man, how how serendipitous that I read that subtitle and we're having this interview. So I'm kind of curious to your thoughts as far as Russia using the coronavirus situation and its scientific clout for, for soft power? There's a, there's a controversy right now. It's a great question. Um, there's a controversy right now in Switzerland because Swiss law, uh, or the Swiss lawmakers said that they would consider any vaccine from any country um, because, you know, this country needs vaccines. And uh so people have been asking, so what about the Russian flu? Oh, no. Like, no, not that one. <laughs> it's just the, 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 um, I, I obviously can't speak to the medical efficacy of one versus another. Um, I know that the Lancet, um, in Britain, the medical journal, um, published a, a pretty favorable in, you know, initial mm-hmm. view of, um, Sputnik five, uh, but that was weeks or months ago. I, 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 and I'm not up to date on epidemiology or, or vaccine science, mm-hmm. but the politics of it uh, are hilarious because I would say, broadly speaking, there's not a chance that anybody in the West writ large is going to inject themselves with a mm-hmm. Russian vaccine because what, you know, Russia is known for, again, with the understanding that it's not a unitary object, etc., but uh, is Navichok and poisoning and geopolitics and spying and going to Salisbury and, and the poisonings and Navalny and the poisonings. And now you want to give us a medicine, you know, like, I mean, the, the, the editorial cartoons almost write themselves. Um, and I think that's depressing because the uh, you know, Russian science has, I mean, it, it's such a wasted opportunity. Russian science and scientists, both hard and social, um, are, are, and, you know, humanities, all literally, the Russian academy is, is, uh, a brilliant and beautiful place with a storied history of incredible discoveries. Well, yeah. Uh, and, a, lot, and, a lot of people don't know, right? Like, right? periodic table, Russian invention. You live. I mean, and, 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 and in nuclear science and all of this, but, but this suffers from the legacy of Cold War geopolitics, Mm -hmm. James Bond kind of, you know, I am evil spy and I shall poison you with a cup of tea and polonium in tea. 
The problem is that, you know, the, the Russian secret services are poisoning people with polonium and Novichok. Like that's actually happening. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's many compounding factors. There's Russophobia, but the Russian state is also doing things to provoke that Russophobia. And, 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 you know, when I've talked to Russian officials, they, I mean, are not wrong in complaining about this Russophobia. There's nothing that we can do um, that looks right in the eyes of the Western media. And they're not wrong. But that doesn't mean that they're all that they're innocent of, you know, malfeasance or or anything. So the the coronavirus um, vaccine from from Russia is really just, uh, I, I think, another example of a what could be, you know, a, a really valuable opportunity to both save lives mm-hmm. and increase international. Um, uh interaction for the benefit of all i mean like we could save lives and interact i mean imagine if russia donated um you know millions of 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 doses of 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 sputnik and you know saved people i mean or maybe they have but i don't know about it right but like like there's there's so many opportunities for positive interaction we're in a global crisis and the russian state could use that as an opportunity to present a different side of itself well and that's kind of the thing too that i'm seeing in some of the the eastern european more specifically ones that are aligned with like russian interests is they're really playing up that like it's cheap and strong and the countries that are looking into it or are receiving it are in the global south which contrasting that to pfizer and moderna like the criticism has been that like okay the global north and the developed nations are getting this and everyone else just has to suffer and die. And, and the Russians are playing this up. And so you'd think, you know, the angle would be like, oh, the, the Westerners let you die of AIDS in Africa for all these years. And, you know, the pharmaceutical companies couldn't be bothered to help you out, you know, yeah. at all. And you're like, we're stepping in, but they're, they're not playing that up, even though they are no, like positioning themselves as sort of a savior of sorts to the global South with this vaccine. Yeah, that 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 actually plays off of a, a you know a history of there's two interesting aspects there um, from from the sort of Soviet history of of support you know there's a Soviet role in uh, Latin America and in large parts of Africa that is, is you know fascinating to to trace those linkages and also to see you know communities of like African students in Russia in, in, and in places in Russia that you wouldn't under, you know, like necessarily expect um, Cameroonian students, you know, in, in, in Krasnodar and things. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, uh, it's very important. And I thank you for that, that, you know, observation that the audience is not just the, the global North, but insofar as my positionality is here in Switzerland as an American in Switzerland or Russophile American in Switzerland, um, I, I think that that it's just not it's it's the the Sputnik uh, vaccine is not seen as a contender it, mm. in any way here um, when it could and it would it could do some real good but I think it suffers it's a really good example of of, of how uh, geopolitical imaginations can dominate you know over over uh, I mean even hard science and so. An interesting question is like, where would you rank those vaccines? 
and what would it take for you to inject yourself with like the Russian mm-hmm. vaccine? And yeah, do, you know. Yeah, and it, it's one of those, you know, to, to kind of put it bluntly, is it has this potential to be like this meteoric rise and significance to it, but it's conditioned by like the past two decades of baggage of what the Russian state has done. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It, and, it can't be free of that. It, and, it, and so all the scientists that worked on it, you know, any of the hopes that they have are just kind of like, well, great. Yeah. How fair is that to them also? Yeah. I'm trying to help. I'm doing the best I can. I've got a vaccine. Look what it does. No, no, no. Navalny. <laughs> you know? Right. That's the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great example, Jonathan, of um, how the barriers, you know, that block us, or like you said, the baggage that block us from seeing, you know, the potential for interactions. Um, and that makes me, I mean, that just makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Another wasted opportunity, I would say. Yeah. Anyhow, that marks the end of the interview. My apologies for going into triple overtime here. However, as someone who is passionate about the Russian sphere, I've resigned myself to accepting a critical fact. Anytime that two or more Russophiles engage in conversation, it's going to expand like the Russian Empire until someone comes in to forcibly stop it. I just wanted to say thank you again to our listeners, and I also want to convey the largest heartfelt thank you possible to Dr. Wolf. The conversation was lively, intriguing, and informative. So thank you again, Dr. Wolf, for your time and insights. They were much appreciated, Daniel. Since the segment has gone on long enough, I'll wrap this up quickly and end the show with the challenge. I want you to think of how other nations can use soft power to positively influence Russia and its political landscape in a way that breaks down some of the walls discussed in today's segment. Thank you. This has been In the Shadow of the Kremlin, a podcast by K-State Poli-Sci students. We'd like to thank both our hosts and any guests for this segment, as well as our listeners. We'll see you for the next installment.